Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 17th, 2017, and you know what day it is? I can't do it for you the way I usually do it. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. My voice is still coming back. As you can hear, it's better than it was yesterday, but I am not going to strain it like that on, on, uh, on recovery time. Anyway, so what do we have on deck today? Uh, we've, we've had some delays with expert counsel shows with uh, interruptions due to uh, a few things, not, not the least of which the uh, workshop that we did last week. And we're going into a short week next week. Next week, of course, being Thanksgiving week. Uh, I will be with you guys Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, I'll run the Thanksgiving special. And uh, Wednesday through uh, the week, and I will be with my family and not doing a damn thing to do with work other than the most basic customer service. Uh, so I decided to make this episode a little bit longer than normal. Basically, I took any expert council member that I had at least one uh, pending uh, answer from. And included me. So we've got nine plus me, bat, and clean up in position 10 today. So it'll be a long show, and uh, that'll be good. If you don't get it all in one go, you know, listen to it twice, and it'll get you through the uh, holiday week. It's going to be short. Uh, so what do we have today? We have the path of being an agent of change in permaculture for Jeff Lawton. It's kind of an interesting dilemma. We have the skinny on top-level domains and search engine optimization from Nicole Sauce. We have boosting energy levels with Dr. Bones. We have a question on will Ethereum be able to scale and meet future demands for cryptocurrency expert Brandon Todd. We have a question on fermented dairy versus standard dairy products for Gary Collins. We have starting butternut and walnuts from seed for Nick Ferguson. And on that same theme, we have processing black walnuts for consumption with Ben Falk, because that can be a pain in the ass, just to be blunt. We have why some vehicles have two batteries with Stephen Harris. And we have cooking leg of pork with Chef Keith Snow. And I'm doing a little... Uh, correction to my notes right there because I had cooking leg or pork I don't think that's the actual topic, it's leg of pork from a heritage hog with Keith Snow and I'm going to talk about why millions of Americans now have high blood pressure but they didn't last week and what's really going on and while we're seeing uh, an eventuality that had to happen with the pharmaceutical industry just to, uh, to raise a few eyebrows I guess before we chill out for the weekend And it might raise my blood pressure when I talk about this because I hate these people so much. But I'll try to stay calm. I promise. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year in history. We're finally back to that again as well with some interruptions. Uh, we are to the year 71 AD in our journey through history. And of course, Vespian is the new emperor of Rome, coming on deck as the fourth emperor in the year of four emperors and managing to get through that year without getting... Dead, And he's putting the empire back together as best he can. Here's what we have. Vespian's new administration. One of Vespian's first priorities is to rehabilitate the empire's finances, which have been destroyed after Nero's excesses and a year of civil war. He raises taxes across the provinces and institutes new taxes in Italy, which had been exempt. He looked the other way when tax collectors became extorted money from the populace, And after they became rich from their ill-gotten gains, he would suddenly notice their crimes, imprison them, and seize their money from the treasury, uh, for the treasury. He did this so much that people began referring to tax collectors as Vespian sponges, who soaked up money before being wrung out. 
The urine in the public toilets was collected in large vats before being sold for various industrial purposes, and Vespian introduced a tax on the sale of urine. Something didn't smell right about this, and Vespian's son, Titus, went to him to complain on behalf of the people. Titus showed Vespian a bag of coins that had come from this tax. After smelling them, Vespian declared, Money does not stink. Vespian didn't hate money. He took Jack Spierko's advice, I guess. Uh, his popularity didn't suffer greatly from these taxes because he used the revenue well. Whenever a natural disaster st struck, Vespian was quick to send aid. He also began repairing infrastructure in buildings that had fallen into disrepair during Nero's reign. These small acts convinced the people they had finally had a decent emperor who cared about his empire. The historian Tactius says, quote, Vespian was the only man to improve upon being named emperor. I think there should be a comma in there. The only man to improve, comma, upon being made emperor. That comma is actually important. I'm not big on commas, but that one is because it doesn't read right. Otherwise, I'll make that correction in the wiki. Why did I bring that up? To pick on David Verne, who did this for us? No, to remind you that anybody can edit a wiki, including adding content to it about things that people want to know about. And you can do that at tspwiki.com. Now we'll return to our segment of the day with my take by David Verne. After the megalomania of the Judeo-Claudian emperors, Vespian was a refreshing change of pace. He was a rustic and had no noble ancestors. He caused a minor scandal when it got out that he took his own boots off in the evening. Throughout the rest of his reign, he will continue to promote peace and is successful in setting the empire on a firm path. Um, boy, you know of all that, you know what I just like zone in on and lock on like a dog with a bone? He caused the scandal when it got out that he took his own boots off in the evening. You want to bet the average Roman was like, the emperor is so rich, he doesn't even take his own boots off. And, like, we're happy, happy being outraged about that, but then it's like, he takes his own boots off. What does, that, what does that show us? It shows us that people, in general, want to be led. And they want to be controlled, and they want to believe that the person doing it is better than they are. Now, I know you don't, dear listener of the Survival Podcast, who has endured many years of Jack Spierko mental deprogramming so that you don't think that way anymore. Or maybe you didn't when you found me. and like, ha, ah, this is someone that gets it, right? I, I understand that. But in general, people want to be led, they want to be controlled, and they want to believe that their leaders are better than they are. Because it, it lets them abdicate their personal responsibilities and their personal independence and their personal quest for liberty and blame somebody else. And it's the only way to explain human history. It's the only plausible way to explain human history. How could, in so many instances, for so long, so few controlled so many if so many didn't in fact crave control and leadership? And I think we are evolving as a species in current time where more and more people are crossing that line and saying, no, I don't want that. And that's causing the collision. That's why both the left and the right have such hatred for libertarians and voluntarists. That's why libertarians are referred to by the mainstream in both sides of the dichotomy as petulant children. You're a petulant child because you believe that you're responsible for yourself. You wish to be responsible for yourself. You ask only to be left alone to be responsible for yourself. And you think it would be a good idea if other people did the same thing. But you're willing to let them live as they choose as long as they leave you alone. And you are referred to as what? 
a petulant child. Why? Because you mess everything up. People want to sit around and be outraged that the president has someone take his boots off. Or they want to be outraged that he dare take off his own boots. As long as they're outraged, they're happy. Think about that. Think about that the next time you try to explain liberty to someone and they look like a monkey trying to figure out how to work a monkey wrench on a pipe. Trying to understand the thing for what it is and why you'd even care. That's why. That's why you're a petulant child if you are a libertarian, a voluntarist, an anarchist in the minds of the mainstream because you upset the apple cart. You no longer are outraged at what others do and you simply wish to be able to do as you please without harming others. That's what this is all about. That's the whole history of people being governed by such a few number of people who are no better suited to choose for your life than you are, but they make you feel good by making you feel outraged. It's the trick. The trick of the sociopath. And I will say this before we transition out of today's history segment. We owe the psychopaths and sociopaths for the advancements made in history. I don't know that we could have gotten here as a species without them. I know that sounds anti-everything I believe. It isn't. There is an evolutionary curve to all species and interactions, and I think we far passed the time when it made sense to let other people rule our lives. Long ago, by the way. But way back here in the Roman Empire, it might have still been necessary. It might. I'm not sure. My thoughts by Jack Spierko. With that, let's go ahead and get into the calls today. The first call I have is from Jeff Lawton on making a decision about how one wishes to be an agent of change in the world of agriculture and permaculture. Jeff, take it away. Hi, it's Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan, where I've been working on uh, one of our projects. I have a question here from Jeff, another Jeff. And uh, Jeff wants to know if I had to choose between being an agent of change with a big top ag seed and chemical company or to run a moderate-sized permaculture design company in the U.S. Corn Belt, uh, which would, would I think would have the most impact and, uh, and, and the greatest potential impact on the planet and food system? Basically, what Jeff describes as greenwashing with a big budget or permaculture and ecological design with a growing but bootstrapped business. Well, Jeff, you know, it's a hard one, that one. It will depend on your ability as an ecological design, permaculture design, you call it, call it permaculture and ecological design bootstrap business. If, you, if you've got great ability, of course, you know, you might be a rock star for all I know when it comes to that sort of thing, and you might really make massive, massive change. But um, I'm not sure that there's that many people out there that I can see who really have that ability. And, and it's hard guy, It's a hard game. People are always challenging you everywhere. And you've got the, the big guys coming in with uh, all kinds of uh, Internet trolls and other um, finger-pointing, accusing variations, media-backed. Uh, general sort of uh, foul play, let's say. But if you're already in the enemy's camp, if you're already trusted, 
if you're inside there, I'd kind of, I'd lean towards that one. I'm a bit subversive though, and I like a challenge, and I like, I like to get in where other people find it um, hard to go, or, or maybe find it a bit uh, scary. Um, it's a kind of scary situation, but I'd get in there where I could stick the knife and twist it. Um, you know, you you you're in that camp. You know, you know the skeletons in the closet. Um, of course, it's a dangerous game. Um, you know, being a counter spy in the enemy's camp. Um, but um, there's all kinds of things you could potentially do. One is get information out and nobody know who is getting it out. And then also, you know, make influential change inside and, um, and, and possibly get um, a bit of that budget. I mean, um, obviously things are going to have to change. Um, as I've said in my recent uh, Friday Five, I think the biggest um, realisation people are going to have as a tipping point is that we are at peak land use in our present mode of behaviour. That means we really have to change the way we use land so we produce more food on less area more efficiently with smart design. And that's really permaculture design. And that gives you a whole feeling of... Of worth, of, of of you know your 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 life feels worthwhile and meaningful, and and you start to function properly, and and, and then you you start to realise there are there are better ways we can live, and and you start to feel truly wealthy beyond money, and that's really subversive. So you know when when people start to realise we we just really there's no question about it we're at we're at peak land use time, so. You know, those big companies have got big budgets. They know this is coming. Like, why not change? Why not jump the fence? Uh, If you can help that happen, great. And and as well, if you can get some of that um, evidence out that things things are shaky and things aren't necessarily honest, um, and you're prepared to take those risks and be behind the sealed door, that's what I'd go for. Um, If that scares the pants off you, well... It might be best <laughs> if it excites you. I'd go for it. If it scares the pants off you, I'd get into that uh, in, 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 into that uh, corn belt and and um, start designing well for people and uh, and um, and make change on the ground in the, in the, in in the t- truly positive way. Only at least you've got reference of what you have done in your in what would then be your previous life. All right, mate great to have you in the camp okay mate cheers here's my very short version of an answer to that if it was me um you're being offered a high-paid job inside the belly of the beast where you can push to try to make change i would live a pretty spartan life i would save as much of their evil money as i could while i was doing it i would push at every opportunity until one of the three things happens one, you actually get something done for good, and something these all might happen at some point along the way. Something or some things for good. This will be difficult, but it's possible. So you take the shot, and you'll miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You may just get tired and weary and decide you want to go do the thing you originally wanted to do. Now you take all the bad, evil money, and you apply it to that, and it's not so much of a bootstrap. And I'll talk about the other advantage of that in a second. 
or you piss them off to the point where they send you packing. And from corporate America today, if they do it for something like you're too much of a disruptor, they'll probably give you a severance package with more nasty money in it. You can also apply to your bootstrap. Now, either, no matter what scenario, like if, if like you actually get something done, then they tire of you because you still don't shut up because you get too excited and they throw you out, or you just quit, or you get something done, but then you can't get anything else done, so you get more frustrated, so you quit, or no matter what. You know what you have? The credential of having been there, an insider. And now you could say, I, having been on the inside, am taking all that I know about what is wrong and creating that which is right. Maybe a little bit more polished, but that would be your marketing. That would be your marketing. And you would know specifically now, because you have been among those who are programming the people that you want to reach, what the language is to reach them with. So I would take the shot, and that's why, because I think that way, and because I don't hate money. And I think, you know, I love the fact that I've built what I have with the Survival Podcast, but I'm going to tell you, making some money along the way and learning all the things that I know so that I can do what I do today was very helpful in making the whole thing successful. Next up, I have a question on top-level domains for Nicole Sauce. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with a question from Chris in Cincinnati. Chris wants to know if the .com top-level domain, or TLD, gets proprietary handling with Google Foo over something like .net, .us, .farm, etc. He asks, do search engines look at and categorize websites differently based on TLD type, possibly making it harder to get better search results? Well, the reason Chris wants to know this is that he can't seem to find a domain name that has a .com available for whatever he's looking to do. He didn't tell me what he was looking to do. And he wants to get something started but is apparently running into this, do- like the domain name roadblock, which which ain't fun. I ran into that a few times in, in the past. And, you know, we can talk about TLDs and what they are and how they work, but let's just take a step back here. I would go back and say, are you sure you can't find a .com name that'll work? Because I've only had one instance where I couldn't, and it was a nonprofit anyway, and I was able to find what I needed and bought it. And interestingly enough, the people who own the .com forward email that is accidentally sent to me, to me directly, I just reached out to them and said, hey, if somebody sends an email to this, can you just automatically forward it? And then I let people know they typed my domain name wrong, which is the risk you have when you don't have a .com. So I would ask yourself again, like go through the, go through the basic questions. What are you starting? Why are you starting it? Who does it need to reach? What will they respond to? Do you already have a name? And that is why you can't find a .com that is suitable. Is the, are the other like .coms that have your name, do they do the same thing you do? And how are your clients likely to find your, your site to begin with, right? So armed with that information, you can decide if you have to buy a domain name that is a strange permutation of your name, you know, like the hyphen, spark hyphen freedom instead of spark freedom, or if you're going to go, if you're going to be lucky and find one that has a .com with your business name, which is like, that is the ideal situation. Let's face it. People are just used to typing .com. I got so excited. I hit my ring on my window. Sorry. I'm gesturing here. You should totally see the video. The thing is, there are so many different possible names that usually you can find a .com for any given business. And it's been a very rare thing, as I said, in my life that I haven't um, 
but sometimes that does happen. And some, in fact, I'm working with somebody right now who we need to, uh, build up his personality. And so it makes sense to use his name as the domain name. And there's an issue with the domain name that is his name. So we have to add a hyphen right now. Am I worried about that? Not really. Um, would I do .NET? Maybe. Actually, .NET wouldn't be bad. So, Chris, I'm glad that you're at the point where you're asking a question like this because that means you must be starting something. You've either started it already and you need a website or you're starting something. So, awesome. That means you got off your butt. Stay off your butt. That's my my advice to you. And and the answer to your question is pretty simple. It, it doesn't, like, long-term doesn't much matter if you do really well. The only issue that you're going to have with a non.com domain name and and I'm just going to call it that because TDL is a is a TLA or a three letter acronym which makes everybody confused. Um, it sometimes people who are already going to do business with you anyway will misremember that your name joesplumbing.net is is not joesplumbing.com and and these people who are already going to do, going to do business with you might send you an email and it bounces because it's the wrong domain name or it will take them to a site that's not about Joe's plumbing. It's about Joe the plumber. And you end up like obviously realizing you're not at the right business or it's located in Portland, Oregon and not Cincinnati. Right. So like you've done it before you've gone to a site and you get there and it's not what you need. And what do you do? You Google it. I mean, it's, it, it is what you do. If you enter right now, if you go enter sparkfreedom.com, Spark Freedom's the name of my nonprofit, you are totally going to find a supplement website. And you're going to go, crap, that's not what I'm looking for. And you're going to either remember that you need to enter .org because it's a nonprofit, or you're going to Google the name and pow, bam, Spark Freedom's going to come up because my Google is a little better than theirs. And if you add my name to it, it's totally going to come up. So as far as as how Google analyzes uh, a .com versus a .us or whatever, Google did release an article in 2015 saying that their algorithms don't apply different weight from an SEO standpoint to .com versus .org versus .us. And I haven't really found anything since then that changes that. It's possible that it has. There is one thing you need to do, and that is um, add SSL encryption to your website so it's https instead of http that that actually is handled differently in in google's algorithm but they have stated they don't do it uh any other way and and if somebody has heard that they've changed that let me know i i couldn't find anything on it i mean their their main goal really in order to stay in business google needs to link searchers with what they seek so if they prioritize things that don't bring people the searches, search results they need, eventually people will stop using them. And I know they're huge. And like the thought of, of not having Google in your life is, you know, uh, unfathomable, right? But there was a time when we were all using Yahoo search and Alta Vista and all that. And sure, they're dominant in the market right now. And they're probably going to stay dominant because I think they understand their, the, the core, core purpose of the Google search engine is to link seekers with what they search. So, as you get into promoting your website and learning how to drive customers there, you'll probably never notice if you chose .NET. I mean, just Google nine mile dot farm, like nine mile farm. You're going to find Jack's dot farm website if you do that. It's not a dot com, it's a dot farm, and it comes right up in the search engine. So I would say this. If someone has the exact company name 
and they do what you do and you get the .net and they have the .com, well, that's just awkward. It's a bad idea for many reasons. It, and it's not because of search ranking. It is going to make your search ranking battle later harder. But if your perfect, perfect domain name is something you can only get a .net for and the .com is something totally different, just, just do it. Just go for it. Do what you need to do. Don't let this slow you down. Go out, start your thing, create a website, create content consistently, get other people to write about you, do guest appearances on things if, if that'll help. I mean, especially if online is the way you're doing outreach and make it so that when I Google your name and your business's name, you come up. And while doing that, start something that people want to buy, do a great job, kick ass and take names. Because if you do that, no one will ever care what your TLD is. And if you don't believe me, Jack has a great five minutes with Jack episode on this topic. I'm hoping he will play at least part of it. I've kept this answer short so he can. And will you do that for me, Jack, please? Because that was really good advice that you gave right there. Anyway, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. I can totally spout off on free market public policy if anybody wants to ask more questions about policy topics like, oh, I don't know, light rail education reform. Um, or if you want to learn more about me, head over to livingfreeintennessee.com. And you, of course, can buy for one of the 10 seats in our coming WordPress webinar series launching next month. Just go to livingfreeintennessee.com and click on the webinar link in the right. It's in the upper right. It will take you to the enrollment page. It does cost money. But we are leveraging several awesome people from the TSP community who are experts in their field to bring you this course and to help you get your website up and running. Okay, TSP, thank you and make it a great week. Okay, good stuff. I, I wanted to, to mention, I, I did a, a a business podcast for, uh, it was like a two-year period, but I actually did it seriously for about six months with some other stuff in, mixed in between, called Five Minutes with Jack. And there was an episode I did on this that I'm going to let my follow-up be that episode from years ago. And my opinion about this hasn't changed. That episode was called .com.net and Negative Greed. It's only about a five-minute segment, and it'll help save my voice. And so I'm going to go ahead and play that for you. Again, this is a podcast from Five Minutes with Jack. You can find all the archives of my business podcast, which I think I did 128 episodes of, at a website called jacksmirko.com. Yes. Um, and uh, you can you know, go back to episode one there and listen to all of that if you want to. Um, anyway, here you go. And then as soon as that's over, we'll just go right into the next call or the next uh, question for an expert council member. And that is going to be a question on boosting energy levels with Doc Bones. Hey, folks. Jack Spirico here with another episode of Five Minutes with Jack. And Max the Dog is... Uh Want to be part of the uh, action again. Uh, but today's episode is titled .net.org.com and Negative Greed. And, and what's that all about? Um, I recently got a question on the site uh, from, a, from a guy that was basically saying, Hey, look, I got this new site I want to set up. And the, the name of the site that I've come up with, he didn't tell me who it was, but you know, whatever it was, my site name, you know, whatever. When I look for .com, it's not available. Somebody already has a domain. But the .NET's available. I want to do a forum. And does .NET fit a forum? And, and the short answer to this is, hey, look, .com, .NET, I don't care, .whatever. As long as it's a top-level domain, as long as it's not .blogspot or something, .wordpress, you're good. Unless you're going to do a lot of radio advertising and things like that, then I would work really hard to do a .com or a .NET because they're the most memorable for people. 
So there's the short answer to the technical part of this question. But there was another little piece. There was a small piece of what this guy asked. I'm not putting him down because a lot of people think this way. And that's why I decided to do an episode on it. And it was basically, um, my concern is that there's this .com is just like a holding. There's no website there. It's like a GoDaddy hosting page or whatever. But if I build up my site and it gets to be popular uh, and it's a .net and somebody has the .com version of it, well, I could lose business, you know? didn't really elaborate on it, but I mean, I've heard that from so many, and I've heard this from, so the guy that, that wrote me on this, don't feel bad about this, I've heard this from big companies, I'm talking Fortune 500 companies that are looking at doing like a mini site, and they're going to market the hell out of it, and they're going to do something, and the, the .com they were in love with is not available, so they look at the .net and go, well, you know, we could get, we could get piggybacked or hijacked or, uh, uh, you know, something like that, and my thought was, don't you understand you already have to be successful for that to happen? See, it's what I call negative greed, and it's it's overemphasis on what your competition's doing. I really don't give a shit what my competition does. I really don't care. As long as they're not slandering me, I don't care. They can put me down. They can be negative about me. I don't care. As long as they're telling the truth, uh, and it's their opinion that I suck, I fine, I could care less. When they put out false information, then it's incumbent upon me to correct that, because that's just smart business. But otherwise, I don't care. And what they do that doesn't affect me, I really don't care about. You know, I worked one time for a company, and uh, they, you know, I had told these folks, you need to do press releases, you need to do press releases. And it was never a priority. You know, it was like, yeah, we'll get to that at some point. Then all of a sudden, one day, you know, the president comes to me, and she's like, we need to do a press release. I'm like, why? She says, because our competitors do. Look at all these press releases our competitors do. Why are we doing this? Well, what do you want to say? Well, I don't know. We have to do something. See, the motivation was wrong. If we had something important to communicate, and we had had plenty of important stuff to communicate over you know, six months and be saying, let's do this, we, we could do that. And the next time there was something important, let's get it out there and use press releases as a medium to communicate it. But doing it because your competition is doing it, or worrying that I'll make a .NET so successful that I'll have brand piracy and someone's going to pirate my brand, hey, why don't you worry about being successful first? with your initiative. Even if you're already successful as a company, if you're going to launch a microsite around a certain concept, there's no guarantee of success just because you're already successful. There's no guarantee that this podcast will be successful just because my other podcast was successful. It makes it a little easier, but there's not, if I don't bring it, if I don't do it right every day, I'm not going to have success. There's plenty of podcasts out there now that are about preparedness and self-sufficiency and survival and homesteading, and some of them are by people that really love what they're doing, and some of them are by people that are completely copycats of what my original work is. My original work is still the biggest site out there. It may not always be. Somebody may come and do a better job someday. But the person that's going to do a better job is going to do a better job whether they're emulating me or not. They're going to have to love what they do more than me to beat me. And that's okay. And if they do it, great, because that will make the whole market better, and it will be better for me, and it will be better for them. I'm not going to worry about them. I'm not going to worry about the fact that I might put up a site that's a .NET and somebody else owns the .com and it's nothing, and then they're going to turn around and try to do something off of my effort because they have the .com version of the brand. I don't have time to worry about anything like that, and neither do you. Don't focus on your customers. Don't get into negative greed. Negative greed is fearing losing something that you don't even freaking have yet, and so many companies do this. And again, not to pick on the guy that asked the question because it's not about him. Big companies, multi-million dollar companies, getting ready to start a new initiative, are worried 
that if they do it, someone will take a piece of it before they've done a damn thing. It's a waste of time, it's a waste of mental energy, and it's freaking arrogant. You have one thing to focus on as a business person. Doing your business to the best of your ability and for the best needs of the people that you serve. And that's it. If you focus on that, sure someone else might pirate something, but if you are ever successful, people will emulate you. If you are not prepared to be emulated, you're not prepared to be successful. And with that, I'll sign off. This has been another episode of 5 Minutes with Jack. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, third edition. Today's question is from Kevin, who writes, Hi, Jack, just wondering, does Doc Bones know anything about increasing energy for a 49-year-old. As my age increases, my desire to get out of bed early on a Saturday or Sunday morning to start a garden project, plant a garden bed, or do a homestead repair is as strong as ever. However, my energy is not what it used to be, and sometimes the duvet wins, and a late start means the project stretches for more days than it should or maybe misses a weather window. Also, before the age of the Internet, boredom used to lover me out of bed on my days off. Now the Internet seems like an excuse to stay in bed a while longer. Any ideas to restore that kick of youth? Maybe a magic herb? Kevin, you young whippersnappers are always asking me for tips on boosting energy, but watch out, the magic herbs I've heard about don't wake you up, they mellow you out. Now there are some ways to boost energy, some are pretty well known, others not so much. Let's start with caffeine. Caffeine from coffee and tea revs up your metabolism, makes you feel like you have more physical and mental energy. You know about coffee and tea, but you might not know about guarana or yerba mate. These herbs contain caffeine naturally, and some studies show that they can help young adults like you with mental strain. But if you already get caffeine from other sources like coffee, be careful not to overdo it. It can disturb your sleep. People talk about taking vitamins to boost energy. Vitamin B12 is one. If you already take a multivitamin, though, you probably already get the recommended daily dose, so you don't need an extra supplement. Science doesn't show real hard data that it'll give you an extra boost, but worth a shot. You might consider the antioxidants coenzyme Q10 or omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, Your cells need these antioxidants to make energy. There's no really strong evidence that they curb fatigue any more than eating a healthy diet, which gives you quite a few antioxidants, but they're also harmless and certainly also worth a shot. Technically, energy comes from calories, so you might want to have a healthy snack in the morning like almonds and fruit, granola bars, yogurt with granola, things like that. It's also a good idea to have a glass of a sports drink or some other liquid on your night table because people that are tired might actually be dehydrated. It's important to have lots of fluids in your system. This may not be your problem, but you can also bump your energy by getting enough good sleep. A lot of people don't get the recommended eight hours. I know I don't. And over time, that might lead you to be extra tired. Now, if you are getting good sleep, you might benefit from a little physical activity. Research shows that adults who fit in as little as 10 to 20 minutes of exercise a day feel less fatigued. That's too much in the morning. Try some old-fashioned stretching. Stand in a doorway, reach to the sides of the frame, grab them, and push your chest forward until you feel a nice stretch in your torso and back. 
hold it for a few seconds and do it a few times. Also, by the way, stress takes a toll on your energy level. Work on decreasing sources of stress and you might have a little more get up and go. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. The Member Support Brigade gets a coupon code for a discount on anything in the store. Hey, and make an old man, me, very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at DR Bones, Nurse Amy channel, and Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page. Thanks again. So good advice all around, in my opinion, there. And I am not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV. But um, the one that I'll reiterate that I think maybe is probably the most important, because it'll lead you to do the other things, is that activity level. I think that one of the best things you can do if you're having trouble with energy levels and things like that, feeling sleepy, feeling tired, is get some activity. And there's two activities that I think are actually best for this. Now, if you want to go work out at the gym, do push-ups, calisthenics, and stuff like that, great, go ahead. Uh, this should be taken in no way to detract from that type of physical activity. But they are walking and breathing. And you can do the symptom together, but not necessarily. It's the best thing for um, being kind of tired and run down. When you feel tired and run down, one of the best things that you can do is sit straight, get your back straight, get your head level, close your eyes. No, you won't fall asleep if you do what I said. And take 10 deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. And count each one. One in, two out. Three in, four out till you get to 20. Because half of 20 would be 10 deep breaths. Then stand up, give a big stretch, and then take one more really deep breath in, really deep breath out. It'll kind of blow you away. And some essential oils also tend to be really useful at this time as well. Not before, but after. So uh, a drop or two, or just holding a bottle of something that's, that's stimulating like peppermint oil under your nose and then taking one more deep breath in and out. You'd be shocked. And then walking. I have tried to make it a practice that, and I wasn't able to do it today. I had to take the turkeys to get to graduate out to Hamilton Meats in, uh, in uh, Weatherford, Texas. Uh, so I got up and had to wrestle turkeys and hoist uh, the box with two of the gobblers. I got it was over 100 pounds. I barely got in the back of the truck myself because I'm being awkward and heavy. Um, they didn't get to walk my property. I walk my property every day. And that really helps me not be in a funk. And there's days where I, uh, I got too much going on. And I don't make the time to do that. And there are the days that I feel kind of tired and just sleepy and blah. So I think, you know, walking. And then one of the best practices, after every meal, walk. I don't care if it's 50 yards. When you're done eating, take a few breaths and take a walk. That stimulates the digestive process. That gets things moving. It doesn't sit there in the stomach. Take a walk. When you go to a restaurant, you know, Try not to park in a place that makes your car a target to be broken into, but park your car far out. Just so if nothing else, when you leave the restaurant, you have to walk to your car. I do the same thing shopping, you know, if I get me to go to a mall, I can't do that anymore. But when I go to a department store or something like that, I park like one of the furthest ways out just to get that walk in. Makes a huge difference, walking and breathing. I know it sounds too simple, but man... I'm going to tell you, when we get to my segment today, there's a lot of simple things that we can do instead of relying on drugs. 
Next up, I have a question on Ether, which is, I mean, actually Ethereum, the cryptocurrency, and its ability to scale for cryptocurrency expert Brandon Todd. Hey guys, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com, here to answer another question for the expert council. This question comes in from Josh, where he asks, What happens to Swarm City token if Ethereum cannot fix its scaling issues? A while ago, Ethereum showed one of its weaknesses, which is scalability. It, it slowed down so much that it took some transactions almost 24 hours to go through. My question is, say they don't fix this at all and you have these huge backlogs of transactions, this would also affect any token, or would this any affect any token built on the Ethereum platform? It also seems like it's uh, waiting forever for your SWT or Swarm City token to go through and confirm payment would be a hindrance to any type of commerce taking place. So in that point, would Swarm City have to create a new token on another platform that has uh, fixed the scalability issue, or could they transfer their DAP to another platform similar in nature to F, like uh, Neo or Waves or something like that? All right, great. Tough questions here from Josh, and really two major questions to speak to. So first off, let's uh, address the question of could Swarm City switch platforms to something like NEO? Um, and if you're not familiar with NEO, it's kind of being dubbed the Chinese Ethereum. So it's it's very similar to Ethereum where it um, is a smart contracting platform like Ethereum. And like Ethereum, there's a, there's kind of a gas model underneath, which is a subtoken in the platform that... Uh, uh, limits how much you can execute those contracts. Uh, so NEO also has that gas model. Anyway, the short answer is, I suppose they could, but the ease of that would depend on how similar the platforms are. A good example of this would be a new crypto social media platform called Yours. Uh, and Yours is a lot like Steemit. And if you've ever used Steemit, it's, it's, um, it's, it's like you know, so it's a social media platform like Facebook, but you know, the problem with Facebook and all these other social media platforms is the content creators are not rewarded in any way, and they're just cannibalized for their for their data um, and and all this kind of thing. So uh, with uh, Steemit, you know, the content creators are rewarded. And yours, um, you can find them over at yours.org. They also have a model where the content creators are rewarded and they have some other features, which is different than Steemit that seems very interesting. Anyway, they made the switch from Bitcoin or BTC to Litecoin because the fees on the Bitcoin network were too high to realistically do what they wanted to do with their product. This was an easy switch for them because Litecoin is very similar to Coit uh, Bitcoin, so not much had to be changed to the main code base of their project to make the switch. Ultimately, the Your social media project switched again to BCH or Bitcoin Cash, which was not a hard switch again for the same reasons. So if the Swarm City team wanted to switch to another platform, they would most likely switch to one uh, which would require the least amount of changes to make. Now, having said that, it would also depend on how big the market and user adoption of that other platform was, but in the end, all of these platforms will experience scalability issues when they get popular. So in the short term, you might be making the choice of either picking what has access to the most users or picking what has less congestion because it has no users yet. So in the end, you might step back with your project, take a year to change uh, you know, the main code base to run on a new network and have no users, while at the same time, the network you just left might have solved their scalability issues by then. For many of these reasons, I think most of the DAP projects or token-based projects are sticking with Ethereum because it is currently the biggest market when it comes to the smart contract game. 
Also, they are the furthest down the road to coming up with some sort of scaling solutions, even if it's just in the short term. So let's talk about these proposed scaling solutions that might help Ethereum scale in the future. For those of you that have been following the Bitcoin news the last couple of years or months, uh, we'll note that the biggest news story has been Bitcoin scaling issues. If you're not familiar, long story short, is that because Bitcoin has become so popular in the last uh, year, coupled with the fact that there is a cap on how much data can be logged every 10 minutes, Bitcoin has faced scalability issues that have caused fees to rise uh, way too high for most people's liking. Because everything in Bitcoin is a consensus-based decision-making process to change anything, Bitcoin forked into two coins so the two major camps can move forward with what they both believe is the best way to scale Bitcoin. One side decided to scale off-chain and use BTC as a settlement layer. These people are now referred to as small blockers. The other camp, or big blockers, decided that their coin would scale on-chain, and they voted to raise the block size limit from 1 megabyte to 8 megabytes on-chain. Now, Ethereum is facing the same problems as Bitcoin because of the same things, basically. ETH um, has become, or Ethereum, has become very popular this last year with all the new ICOs coming out of the platform, as well as, as, well as space resources becoming uh, more scarce at peak times. Now, here is where Ethereum and Bitcoin differ. With Bitcoin, uh, it's a block size cap restriction, but with Ethereum, there is no block size cap. Uh, what we have is a gas limit. Remember that Ethereum is a node-connected ne- node network, just like Bitcoin, but with Ethereum, these nodes not only validate and log blocks into the blockchain, they also execute smart contracts anytime anyone calls a contract to be executed. The way the system determines how many times you get to run that code or contract via the node network is by how much gas you spend. Thus, an attacker cannot run infinite loops on smart contracts to use up all the resources of the Ethereum virtual machine, or EVM. So when you're using the Swarm City ecosystem, you are spending gas to tell the nodes to perform certain functions of that smart contract. The gas limit is decided on by the miners based on market conditions as well as a voting mechanism that requires 67% of them to move the limit up or down. Also, gas price is determined by demand for said gas as well as the supply or gas limit at that time. So imagine when peak traffic times occur, gas is higher priced because Uh, of the gas limit and the demand. This is what has slowed down uh, the transaction times in Ethereum ecosystem in the last few months. What we have uh, been seeing is that when these popular ICOs have been launching, investors have been offering huge amounts of gas to miners to get to the front of the line, effectively bidding up the gas price, where all of the regular traffic offering standard gas amounts are stuck waiting for all of these big spenders to budge to the front of the line, sometimes for hours until they get all of their transactions through. So here we are again with scaling issues, just like with Bitcoin. And much like with Bitcoin, there seems to be proposed solutions uh, that is off-chain, much like the way BTC's roadmap calls for the Lightning Network, which is an off-chain multi-thread tangle of pegged one-to-one payment channels. Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> but with Ethereum, instead of uh, Lightning Network, it's called the Raiden Network. I will link to this in the show notes, uh, uh, so you can check it out if you want, if you've never heard of it. But basically, it's just it's pretty much identical to the way BTC is proposing to scale off-chain with the Lightning Network. There is something else they are working on with Ethereum called sharding, where they propose breaking up the ledger into chunks or shards and somehow having transactions only accessing the parts of the chain that is relevant to its origin and destination. This would require proof of stake, which is currently in the works on uh, the Ethereum and on the Ethereum roadmap. 
I will link to this information about both of these things as well. So in conclusion, Ethereum obviously has its own scaling challenges, much like Bitcoin, but it also has its scaling solutions in the works as well. It will be interesting to see how they implement uh, all of this, because to get proof of stake, they need miners to agree to run the code that puts them out of business. This is said to be deployed over time as a difficulty time bomb called Ice Age, where the difficulty goes so high that basically becomes impossible to mine uh, ETH anymore, and hopefully by that time they will be able to implement proof of stake. Let's hope they get it right. Like I said, I'll provide links to all of this I talked about uh, here over at my website, CryptoSkim.com. Just click on the tab TSP Questions when you get there, and scroll down to see the episode number and the description. Well, I hope this answers your questions, Josh. I know this is a lot of stuff to sift through, but that's just where we're at. Um, you know, with these proposed scaling solutions are still, you know, they're on the roadmap and they're not implemented yet. And so we'll, we'll have to see what happens. So th- again, this is Brandon from Crypto Skim signing off. Okay, so I, I want to add just a little bit to the whole scaling issue with all of the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, etc. Of course, Segwit2x was uh, canceled. Uh, many screamed, this is the end of Bitcoin, and Bitcoin Cash is going to take over. Bitcoin Cash went way the hell up and then like cut right back down. And This this morning when I checked Bitcoin, I was happy to see it trading at like $7,800 of Bitcoin. Um, especially since I picked up some Bitcoin yesterday, that was that was nice to to, to about make about six hundred dollars, seven hundred dollars on each Bitcoin that I'd picked up. I picked up some Bitcoin actually to uh, to uh, to to push on over to uh, an exchange and pick up some Zen Cash and decided let me get twice as much as I think I need and hold the rest in Bitcoin. And that was a nice little gain. Um, I, again, I, I don't think you should be trading this stuff like like I do, maybe, unless you really have worked things out and figured things out. But in the end, this is what I think about all the scaling issues. I believe in human nature. And I believe that, in general, people will do what's best for them, and smart people are more likely to do what's best for them than dumb people. And that the majority of people that hold sway in things like development curves, et cetera, and forking, et cetera, in the world of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all these cryptocurrencies, the legitimate ones, because there's a lot of scam ones, there really are, um, will eventually always do what's best for them. And I believe the reason there's people like holding out in the Ethereum world, in the Bitcoin world right now, is right now it's best for them to hold out. They're making more money by holding out there will come a point where that reaches a diminishing return and either the change is made or they will crash to the ground. I believe that in most instances, when that come-to-Jesus moment occurs, the change will be made. Why? Because people do what's in their best interest. That's why the market works in the first place. That's why the product that I brought you yesterday called the Furminator used to sell for like the, the, the medium-sized one used to sell for like 35 bucks. And as long as they were the only product on the market like it, and the knockoffs were really complete shit, they just said, we're selling for 35 bucks. Even though we make this thing for probably two bucks, we're going to charge this exorbitant markup because people pay for it. When enough of the knockoff products got good enough to start to dig into their ass, all of a sudden that product got priced at like 12 bucks, where it probably belonged if you were doing it by an Excel spreadsheet, reasonable markups, and what the market would bear in the first place. So is so instead of sitting there and holding their breath and putting their company out of business, 
they made an adjustment and became competitive. Not because they all of a sudden found a heart for dogs and cats and dog owners and cat owners and said, gee, I, 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 I think we need to do better for them. They said, we need to do better for ourselves. We still make a good profit at this level, and we'll make the adjustment now because the market dictates it. That's what I think will happen to the majority of cryptocurrencies. Does that mean that these issues might not someday, due to politics and people holding their breath for too long, kill Bitcoin or kill Ethereum or kill some other major crypto? No, it doesn't mean it can't happen. But it does mean if you pay attention and you understand where the thresholds are, and I'll tell you where it is for Bitcoin, it's somewhere between like eighteen and $25,000. That's the point where when Bitcoin gets into that range, and you're like, that can't happen. Okay, well, it couldn't happen that it was going to hit $5,000 when it's $500 either, but it did. But it's about that range, somewhere in there, where the math breaks. And it just will not work anymore, even for large-scale transactions. So that's about how much run-up you have. And I'm going to tell you that these people that have millions of dollars invested in ASIC2 gear mining Bitcoin are going to hold it probably like to 75% of where it'll break or 80% of where it will break. And then they will accept reality. And if they don't at that point, everybody will keep clinging to it and that's when I will separate myself from that particular vehicle. That's how I look at it. Now, is that pretty advanced trading strategy, and is it over the head of some of you listening? Yeah. But what I want you to understand about cryptocurrency and why I talk about it, it's not going away. It is the biggest thing to happen in economics in the history of mankind, and it is going to affect your future. For me to ignore it because some of you don't want to face it would be irresponsible and would be abdicating my responsibilities that I promised to do for you nine and a half years ago when I started this show. I said, if it affects your life, if it affects your future, if you need to know about it, I'm going to talk about it even if you don't want to hear about it. And a lot of you went, go, Jack, go, go, Jack, go, right up until one of the subjects was one you didn't want. Do not close your eyes to this. Do not turn your back to this. Learn about this. If it's still all, I don't know what the hell these people are talking about, take your ass to YouTube, search for Dash School. Amanda B. Johnson, who's been on the show, has a six-part series. Yes, it's to promote the Dash cryptocurrency. The first three freaking episodes have nothing to do with Dash. Any of you that tell me, I don't understand it, it's over my head, if you haven't watched that, you're full of shit. If your IQ is over 85... And you watch those three episodes twice, maybe, if your IQ is down to 85, you will understand cryptocurrency. And you will stop leaning on the crutch of, I don't understand, I don't believe in it. You can't not believe in it. It's like, that's like at this point, saying, I don't believe in the internal combustion engine. One day it will be obsolete. Well, of course it will. But we've been, we've had it for like 120 years now. It's kind of important to the world. That's cryptocurrency, whether you like it or not. Yes, I am now. I did this thing on Facebook about a month and a half ago. And it said, explain your job in a GIF. I'll start. And my GIF was some little creature in a library. And there was another little creature on the ground holding its ears and rolling back and forth. And the little creature that was me had a giant book. And it was pounding the one on the ground that was rolling around with the book like smack, smack, smack. And it said, learn, learn. Learn, 
That's what I'm doing right now. I spent six and a half minutes on it with my voice strained when I was going to make this show as short as possible. There's a reason. Stop denying reality. It's going to kick you in the face. I'm not saying go out and put money in cryptocurrency. I'm not saying become a believer. I'm saying learn about it because it's going to affect your future in ways you can't even imagine yet. Let's go ahead and take another one. This one is for Gary Collins. We'll get into a totally different subject on dairy and fermented dairy. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of PrimalPowerMethod.com, where I answer and discuss all things primal, paleo, simplified living and living off the grid. And I'm the author of the groundbreaking book, Going Off the Grid. Had to throw that in there. Um, but hopefully this recording will go well. I'm on the road outside of Sacramento in a rest area somewhere. And, uh, there's a lot of truckers around here. So hopefully we won't have too many, uh, disturbances, but a good question about if ferment, fermented dairy products are better or easier to tolerate than normal dairy products. And there's, you know, the big debate and I've discussed this about how humans are the only ones that consume milk from another animal. Uh, possibly. There may be other. We don't know for sure. I mean, I never say 100% on something like that. But all organisms have their own diet adaptations. So that doesn't mean just because we do that, that it technically it is wrong. It just has been found that a lot of people, humans, have issues with dairy from primarily cows because that's where most of our dairy is from. So by fermented dairy products such as yogurt, kefir, you know, along those lines, yes, it is easier to tolerate. But again, you want to make sure they're from good sources, organic or farmers, you know, who use the proper practices in producing that dairy and raising that dairy producing animal, because it could also be goat's milk and other things as well. But the reason why, remember that fermentation is basically the breaking down or beginning of decomposing that food item. I mean, lots of things are fermented. You know, vegetables, meat can be fermented. So it's just a process of using microorganisms, bacteria, you know, all kinds of things in order to break down that food item and make it easier to digest and also a way to store it. Oh, it was used traditionally used as a preservative. The food will stay longer long as you don't let it ferment obviously too long. You want to stop the fermentation process at some point by using refrigeration. Um, I won't get in all the weeds on fermentation. I actually have a video I show on YouTube on how I ferment vegetables and some other things. So with that, obviously, Lactose is the sugar in dairy that we're dealing with, and by fermenting it, you end up breaking down that lactose. The organism, microorganisms consume it in order to fuel themselves. So, yeah, that's how it helps and can be more tolerated by people who have issues with lactose. So, I hope that answers the question without getting too long-winded and getting into the whole fermentation process. Thanks again, guys, and keep those questions coming. All right, next up I have a question for all things plants, permaculture, and small-scale homesteading, farming, you name it. Nicholas Ferguson on the propagation of your own trees, in this case specifically butternut and walnut. Nick, take it away. 
Hey everyone, Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com answering a question on plants and forestry in particular today. And just thought I'd remind the TSP audience that you can send me questions on animals like rabbits, chickens, and other small stock, as well as goats for both dairy and meat. You can also send me questions on plants, propagation, seed saving, plant breeding, general homesteading topics. I'm a permaculture and homesteading consultant, so most permaculture and homesteading topics are fair game as well. So today I have a question from Wade in West Virginia, USDA Zone 6, and he's wanting to start a bunch of butternut and black walnut trees from nuts, I presume, to get a nut orchard. And the short answer is that they both require between three and four months of cold, moist chilling, otherwise known as stratification. So... If you can give them 90 to 120 days of cold, moist conditions, generally in between like 33 degrees and like 45 degrees, somewhere in that range, they'll break dormancy and start to sprout. And black walnut needs about a minimum of 90 days and butternut needs around 120. So there's the short answer, but you guys know me and I don't like to leave details out because I want to set you up for success. So... Butternut and walnut seeds require around 120 days of moist chilling stratification between 32 and 40-ish degrees before they'll germinate. So to begin stratifying butternuts specifically, you soak the seeds in water for 3 to 12 hours and then let them air dry for a few hours. And you can arrange the seeds in single layers in a box or a plastic bag and cover each layer with moist medium such as peat moss, sphagnum moss, or sand to a depth that fully covers the seed. So for refrigerator storage, the medium should be only so damp that water can't be squeezed out by hand. You just want it damp, not wet. Once a box or bag is filled, keep the package covered with plastic to retain the moisture, but poke a few small holes through the plastic to allow air to pass through, since stratifying seeds requires oxygen for respiration. They, they will actually suffocate if they don't have air. Stratification can also be accomplished outdoors utilizing a technique known as pit storage. So for pit storage, you can pick a place with good drainage. You don't want standing water to ensure the seed will not be flooded. You want it, again, it needs air, so it needs to be able to breathe, so no standing water. You can dig a pit, line the bottom with coarse sand, place this, the nuts on the sand in a single layer, And then cover that with a layer of sand or chopped straw and continue layering the seed and stratification medium until the hole is filled. Or you can fill the rest of it with chopped straw and cover it with hardware cloth to keep rodents out. And if you really have rodent problems, then what you might want to do is make a a container made out of hardware cloth, put that in the ground, and then fill it up and then close the container with hardware cloth, and that'll keep any rodents out of it. And just the moisture in the ground should keep the seeds at the perfect moisture level until they can be dug for planting when the ground thaws in the spring. And the easiest way to plant butternuts is to direct seed in the fall. Same with black walnuts. So if you can, the best way to get them planted is to just direct seed them where they need to grow a couple inches under the soil surface and cover it up with some mulch. But the main problem with this method is squirrels and other rodents are likely to dig them up. So if that's likely a problem, 
then you can plant them again, you know, one or two inches deep with a layer of mulch on top. But before you put the mulch on it, put a layer of hardware cloth down and then put the mulch down on top of it. You could use like a 12 inch square piece of hardware cloth and you could use something like a ground staple um, to hold that in place and then put mulch on it. And I would flag it. And that'll prevent squirrels or rats or any other kinds of rodents from digging down to get the seed. They'll hit that hardware cloth and not be able to get through it and give up. And if you flag the location with something that's not going to get knocked down with your winter conditions, so snow or ice or whatever, then in the spring, you just go out there to wherever everything's flagged, remove the hardware cloth when things start budding out and waking up, and that'll prevent that tree seedling from growing through the hardware cloth and making problems. And, of course, having those nut trees staked also prevents, not staked but marked, also prevents unfortunate mowing accidents. So if you mow in the area at all, it's a really good idea to have a stake marking where they are so you don't accidentally run over them with a mower. And as for the black walnut, the same exact things apply you can remove the husks and then place the nuts in the water. Nuts that float are not viable and can be discarded. That's assuming you took the husk off. And the good viable nuts will sink to the bottom. So before they'll germinate, again, the nuts need to be cold, moist, stratified. You can meet those requirements by planting them, direct seeding them in the ground, just like butternuts, or in a refrigerator. And if you want to make it simple, just don't worry about the specific number of days of stratification. Just plant them where they should grow, cover with that hardware cloth, weigh it down with rocks or anchor with a staple or something, and just let nature do the work for you. Just come back in the spring before they pop out of the ground and make sure you remove that hardware cloth so they don't get like wedged in between the hardware cloth because it'll cut the cambium and it's just it's going to set you up for failure if you let them grow up through that hardware cloth. And then maybe you start with three nuts in each hole. And then the next year you go and you keep the best two looking nut seedlings and you clip the other one at the ground level. And then the next year you keep the best looking one and then just snip the, the weakest one off at ground level. And that'll make sure you have the best out of all three growing straight and tall and that should really set you up for a lot of success. And a lot of times you'll often end up with way more nuts that you can plant than locations for a full-grown walnut or butternut tree. So that's why I suggest putting multiple nuts in the same hole so that you can pick and choose which one is going to end up growing there. So that should just about cover it. If you have any more questions or need help with things like that, you should check out my page over at patreon.com forward slash homegrown liberty, where you, the listeners, can sign up to support what I do and get really cool videos and prizes for helping support me. For instance, a bunch of my supporters are getting a box from me in December containing all sorts of cool things like comfrey cuttings, seed mixes, some vegetable seeds, and some of the higher tier supporters are also getting bare root trees from me as well. So if you like those kinds of things that I teach, check it out over there. I'm trying to do at least two videos a month. And hopefully here soon, I'll be bumping up closer to one video a week. But, you know, 
the more support you guys throw at me, the more videos I can afford to make, and the better the video quality will get. So thank you so much to everyone who does, and thanks again for the great questions. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. Do good things. Good stuff from Nick. Now, if we're propagating walnuts, maybe we're propagating a really great tree to propagate, a really great tree to grow, a, a tree that can be a future store of wealth for your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, black walnut, one of the, the best timber crops you could be growing right now if you have space in a place that will grow. And in the meantime, while it's growing into one of the greatest timber trees that's ever existed, it's going to produce copious amounts of nuts, and they taste great. I love black walnuts. You know what I don't like? Beating on them and trying to get into them. On that, I know a guy that grows a lot of black walnuts, and his name's Ben Falk, and we have a question for him on processing black walnuts so we can actually eat them instead of just staying our fingers on walnut husks and being frustrated as we pull small amounts of nut meat out uh, that will add up to the square root of F all if we take the wrong approach. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all, Ben Falk calling with Whole Systems Design. Um, awesome to hear a question that's straightforward um, to answer. Not that all the questions I get aren't really good, but, you know, some there's just not a particularly right answer or wrong answer, or um, there's so many different approaches. So this one's pretty straightforward, which is great. Black walnut processing, we... Um, have been doing it for a little while now and definitely most folks if you're pulling out a vice or a hammer or a car or a truck um you're making it difficult there's, there's easier ways so what i've started to do is just let the hulls soften on their own over a period of you know a week to two three weeks uh depending when you harvest them you they could be already softened on the ground um if you're, you're trying to go at them green and hard, you're just going to make life difficult. And contrary to some information out there, they can turn black, the hull, the outside material, and the nut is still good. Um, there is some information, I think, on the Indiana Black Walnut Society page or something that says that'll affect the nut quality. It's not what I found. That may be the case for some people somewhere, certain situations. But So we let them soften two to three weeks just in buckets whatever we harvested in harvest them by the way with a nut wizard the large nut wizard i like picking up my hand i like the activity but man if you see what a nut wizard does it's so fast um so there's a few tools to invest invest in to make this like highly worthwhile a nut wizard is one of them um or get some good exercise and get some mobility going. That's fun, too. They're easy to pick up. It's not like picking up. I mean, they're easier to pick up than, than acorns, even, depending on the conditions of the ground. So pick up. You can harvest hundreds of pounds in an hour. Um, let the hulls soften off of the... Um, the, the, the husk. Excuse me. The, yeah, the, 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 the hulls. Um, I always give you that. The husk soften off the the nut itself, the shell of the nut. And um, after a few weeks when they're brown, soft, maybe even getting black, um, put them in. You can do a few things. You can just put gloves on and literally just squeeze them off, throwing the compost into one bin one direction and throwing the dirty shells or the, the dirty nuts in the shell 
into a bin that you're then going to clean off with some decent pressure from a garden hose and like a sprayer. Um, or you can take the whole shebang, the whole the whole package, soft, hull and all, and put them in like a metal garbage can type of, you know, um, basin and take a, um, uh, a, a nice aggressive paint stirrer, like nice half-inch low RPM or just a pretty burly drill. I happen to have like a nice low RPM Milwaukee drill that's just not going to stop for anything and uh, like a whole hog. But you can just use a decent three-quarter inch or half-inch drill, excuse me, um, out plug-in. I wouldn't use a cordless. You'll probably just abuse it. And um, with a paint stirrer, there's certain shapes of paint stirrers that seem to work better than others. I have one that is like more of a paddle stirrer than the spiral, and I find that works better. Um Put that in the bin, add some water, not too much. It's like just enough so there's water to the surface, but it's filled with the walnuts in the hull, in the husk. And um, stir it up. And in a minute or two or three max, oh, put a cardboard box flat over the whole thing, or you're just going to stain everything you're wearing and your face and everything with black stain. Um, Stir it all up. And then basically you dump all that water, and I haven't made this part of the uh, processing more efficient. What you should do, and I will do next year, is pour all of that material through like a nice wide screen, probably um, half inch to even inch size holes, maybe three quarter inch to inch size holes. Spray all that off with a hose, or do what I've done, which is just then pick up the clean nuts, and they're going to be totally clean. Pick them up, clean it off. I mean, they're going to have some fragments of, of husk on them, but they're all that's like they're going to be amazingly clean after the paddle mixing. Um, put them in like other buckets, or ideally like um, you know metal, like open kind of um, like a clam uh, clam trap or a, a crab trap type of. You know, like open-sided metal whisk a basket, a waste basket is what I use because I just have it. Spray all that down and then dry them. Um, if you can pour the whole mix through a one-inch, ideally or so, size sieve, like metal, heavy metal mesh grate, like a grill might even work. Some type of like outdoor grill type of rig, so everything falls through but the nuts themselves. Then spray it all off clean with a hose. Then dry them, and you dry them over the wood stove for a few hours or in the sun for a day or two get them dry store them in onion sacks or burlap bags in like about 50 to 70 percent humidity is probably ideal but i'm still messing around with that you know pretty dry not crazy dry but not too humid and check them every now and then make sure they're not molding but if they're really nice and dry going in they should be fine they can keep for years fresh totally worth it and then for cracking them so when you eat them eat them fresh so they're not rancid they won't taste anything like bitter rancid walnuts at the store use a master cracker it's so much easier than a vice or a hammer um it's just this amazing tool it's made in missouri the knockoff doesn't work as well spend the 90 dollars on a master cracker you'll use it forever and it's an incredible amount of leverage. Genius design this guy came up with. For any nuts you're processing, you're cracking fresh and eating fresh, this Master Cracker seems like the way to go. So check that out. I think it's called the themasternutcracker.com. 
online, but you'll find it. Good luck. Awesome. Probably bang, biggest bang for the buck food source I've seen anywhere besides landing a big fish is to pick up black walnuts on the ground, and most people don't want them. Um, it's, it's really, if you think about it, pretty amazing. It's probably like the only foraged food that I know of in the industrial food supply. Like you can go to a Costco or whatever type of big, you know, box industrial food place you, you go to or don't go to and buy walnuts. And those, if they're black walnuts, they're not Persian walnuts. They're harvested by people foraging them in Missouri and the mid central Midwest where there's a huge outfit that buys them um, from whoever collects them wherever. So it's actually a wild food supply. Pretty cool. Um, awesome. Good luck. Okay, a couple things to add there to help you out. I have gone ahead and made sure you can find all of the things that Ben was talking about that may be hard to find. First of all, the Nut Wizard. Uh, there's one that I use that is a little bit more affordable. They all work really good. They actually make um, devices that are very much like them for picking up golf balls that you might be able to find at like an Academy Sports and Outdoors or something. They all work. I do have a link on Amazon where you can see what it looks like. Once you know what that... So unlike the Master Cracker, I don't think this is a big deal. If you find anything that looks like these things, they work. And they're basically like a barrel made with wires on the end of a pole. And you roll it and those wires spread out and the nuts go inside and they get stuck in there. You just keep doing it, and then you dump them out into a bucket, and you keep doing it. Those are great, especially for black walnuts, because otherwise you're going to have brown, purpley hands. Even when they don't look like they're starting to turn, enough of them are going to be starting to turn that they will stay in your hands. And it, Black walnut stain is the, from the holes is really, 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 really staining. Um, house staining, I used to use it to brown my leg hold traps. Like, you know, you blew a gun, we would boil a bunch of holes from uh, black walnuts and dip our traps into that, and it would brown them like an old musket. All right, just so I'm warning you there. Um, next up, he mentioned the paint mixers that you can put on a drill. I have the one that I use. You can get them at Lowe's and Home Depot. The key to get the one that I use, it looks like a big egg mixer. If you go to where the paint stuff is and look for it, you will not find it. You will find it in where they have like mortar. It's mainly mixed for mixing concrete and mortar. And I think it would work very good for this application. It's not a paddle like he was talking about. It's more like I said, like a big four, like an egg beater thing. It works great. And I use mine for something different. I don't grow black walnuts here. But sometimes I need to mix up a really big bucket full of sugar. And I want the sugar to dissolve. Okay, that's what I use mine for. All right, uh, and then because I got to feed bees, yeah, that's it. That's the ticket. And then the other thing is the master cracker. So I, I looked this up. I found the website. You can order it online with shipping for I think it's about 108 bucks. It comes to. You have to order it by mail with a printout form. I've never ordered from these people. It doesn't look like their website is very well maintained. I would contact them directly and make sure that they're going to actually ship you one and that everything is still up and up. But I have a link to the order form itself. You can bounce around on their website and find it. I find it odd in this day and age that you can't actually place an order online for something. 
Um, but it will save you money over buying it on Amazon. Amazon is about 145 bucks, but free shipping and you can get it like in at you know, two days, typical Prime thing. So I put links to both of it so you can see where it is and where it comes from and stuff like that. My concern with ordering direct from this company, how well they're managing things, their website still has things on it like click here to add a title. Uh, but it is the same company and it is the same original thing. I verified that for you so you can take it on your own from there. So just some additional help for you in doing this. I, I, I wish I still lived where Black Walnuts just grew all by themselves because they are a fantastic food source and, as Ben mentioned, extremely sustainable. Next up, we have a question on vehicles and why some vehicles have two batteries and not just diesel vehicles. And can you still build a battery bank and all that kind of good stuff? And, of course, we sent that to the master of energy, Stephen Harris. Hi, Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. This question comes from Dominic. He wrote to Jack and I and said, my gas truck came with factory dual batteries. Why the extra battery? Details. I own a 2005 GMC Sierra Crew Cab short box 4x4 with a 6 liter gas motor. I am a contractor, handyman, commercial fisherman, jack of all trades, and would like to utilize any uh, of the potential use of the extra battery. I would also like to install an inverter so I can leave my generator at home for those jobs that don't have power on the site. Will this extra battery be beneficial to utilizing an inverter? Any ideas, suggestions are much appreciated. Now, before I forget, you cannot, under any circumstances, put an inverter under your hood. I don't know if you were referring to that or people in the audience are thinking like that. Never, ever can an inverter go underneath your hood. One, it's too hot. The temperature under the hood is at least the temperature coming off your radiator. And since it's water glycol based and it's pressurized, that generally means it's going to be above 220 degrees Fahrenheit. The inverter will fry. It will not like it. Two, that's a serious splash zone. There aren't many waterproof inverters on the market, let alone ones that can survive the intense splashing that, that happens underneath uh, a car's hood. So, no there. This lot leaves you with clamping on with an inverter. So, you think this is a simple question, but it really isn't. Okay, now, when a car is designed, it has to do certain things. For example, if it's July, midday, clear, sunny, and you're driving in, you, you go through Furnace Creek, go to Stovepipe Wells, which is Death Valley, you drive in on the flatland, and you're in a pickup truck loaded, you know, four people, bunch of stuff in the back of the truck, and you're pulling a trailer full of horses, which would be maximum weight of your trailer. And you drive in through Furnace Creek and Stovepipe Wells, and you go to leave Death Valley, you're going up about 5,000 feet in total height. And you're doing it at worst points at a 9% grade, which is a huge steep grade for a vehicle, let alone a truck loaded with a trailer loaded pulling. So that vehicle has to be designed to do that 
with the windows rolled up, with the air conditioning on, with you going 30 miles an hour in second gear up the hill, pulling the horses, and there's a tailwind behind you. So you got less air pressure in front of the vehicle to suck it through the condenser for the AC system and the radiator for the coolant system, which will have the trans cooler probably in the radiator tank or mounted separately. So that's got to stay cool. We got to design that for that to do all of that at worst case. Most people will never do this, but there are people that will. If we didn't design for that situation and you broke down on Towns Pass, you're dead. I mean, literally, there could be one or two or three or four vehicles a day, depending on time of year, coming through there. And in in a 120-degree environment, you're dead. I mean, you can literally see stovepipe wells up on top of, uh, of uh, Towns Pass. And it's like, you could never walk there. You'd be dead before you can get there. You can see it, but you'd be dead before you got there. And we, I, myself, my boss, we aborted the test and stopped because there's this guy and his family in a van broken down on Towns Pass. He was French and didn't speak any English. And uh, luckily, my boss knew French from the AMC uh, Renault days. And he basically told him, shut up, get your family, get in the vehicle. And we took him back down to Stovepipe Wells to the store where he could get assistance. So not only does your vehicle need to be designed for that, but your vehicle has to be designed for Bemidji, Minnesota or Alaska. Now Bemidji, Minnesota is one of our testing places where we go for cold. And if it's not colder than minus 20, as in below minus 20 Fahrenheit, we don't test. So when we go there in January, February and test, it's got to be below minus 20. And so not only does your vehicle have to start in a 100 degree, 120 degree Death Valley in a hot engine compartment, your vehicle has to start when the vehicle is completely cold and frozen to below minus 20 in Bemidji, Minnesota. This can be the same vehicle. Now, this is why regular batteries, starter batteries, are optimized for cold cranking amps. So when you hit the starter, you know, everything's frozen up. The maximum amount of current will go through the starter to start the engine, and away you go. So that has to be designed for as well. Otherwise, I mean, if you're stuck someplace and it's minus 20 and you can't start your car and you're not near anything, uh, you can die very quickly in minus 20 a lot quicker than you can die in a 120-degree desert, especially if you aren't uh, wearing the right stuff. So that's an example of what some of the things have to be designed for. Now, maybe your vehicle, being a large engine, uh, gas engine, it has to start in Minnesota in the winter, it, below minus 20. That's in the server, it's in the manual, owner's manual, so we have to do it. What's in the owner's manual is the Bible, okay? That's legally court admissible information. So maybe your vehicle couldn't do it on one battery on the coldest type of environment. So they had to go to two batteries so they could have more current. Another answer is, look, with the fuel economy stuff and the other BS that's being regulated in the automobile industry, the vehicles have to get lighter, they have to get smaller, your engine compartment is smaller, more stuff is packed in, it's 10 pounds of crap into a five pound box, 
maybe they just couldn't fit in a group 27 or a group 29 battery. Bigger than that is a group 31. Believe it or not, a group 34 is actually smaller than a group 27. So maybe you got two group 34s in there because they couldn't fit a larger battery in there. They actually had to go to two batteries for packaging reasons under the hood because they're trying to save weight, save metal, reduce cost, and everything else. That's another good reason why you got two batteries. Now, your inverter. Your vehicle is sitting there at idle. Okay? And you go, I got a 180 amp alternator. Yeah, good for you. That's when it's spinning at 8,000 RPMs. That's when you're getting 180 amps. So when you're going down the road at 65 miles an hour and the alternator is on a belt pulley system, so its speed is higher than the engine speed, you know, it's spinning at 8,000 RPM. Yeah, you got 160 amps. At idle? <laughs> nope. Sorry. Uh-uh. Door prize for you. No. So, you know, we're talking four, five, six hundred watts. Watts, not amps. You know, watts is amps times volts. So we're talking about that many watts at max continuously and it's like okay sure you gotta run a circular saw and your your big chop saw you know it's gonna draw 12 amps and you got a 2000 watt inverter on your batteries and your trucks at idle yeah your chop saw is gonna work because it's not a hundred percent duty cycle you take it and you chop the wood and you go off and you do your construction stuff and it sucks off the batteries and then the, it gets recharged because the truck is at, at idle that will work. You can do that. But if you wanted to run like a whole bunch of lights and a bunch of other stuff continually, and it was more than four or 500 watts, the truck ain't going to be able to do it at idle. Now, here's the other thing that makes this complicated. You have starting batteries in your vehicle. If you change those out to be marine or deep cycle battery batteries, then you can really use your truck a lot better as, you know, a hybrid generator uh, with an inverter. It worked better. Now, a starting battery, if you take it from 100% to zero, back up to 100, back down to zero, you can do that about 10 or 12 times with a starting battery, and then it's dead. You killed it, okay? You're not a doctor. You killed your battery. If you do that with a deep cycle marine battery you can do that 150 to 250 times they have a much different chemistry see the starting battery chemistry is all the current it can get when you turn that starter it hardly ever goes below 95 percent depth of discharge it's always going between 95 and 100 percent because you're just starting your vehicle with the marine battery you can go down to 50 or 20 percent or even to zero and then back up you didn't hurt it as much but if you live in Bemidji, Minnesota, you're not going to want to swap out your starting batteries for marine batteries because you're going to need those extra cold cranking amps. The starting battery has more cold cranking amps than the marine battery. The marine battery is formulated not for maximum cold cranking amps, but for maximum capacity and the better chemistry to handle a lower depth of discharge. So... Uh, in a nutshell, that, I hope, will answer your question and many other questions that people have. 
Um, you know, one of the great ways of attaching to a battery is you uh, you detach a piece of you get some cheap jumper cables or whatever, and you cut off the end the the clamps on them. You strip it back, and then you braze that onto a pair of vice grips. You know, have a welder braze it on for you or something like that. Make a really good connection. You could get away with hose clamps and a big bare piece of it if you wanted to. But you take those vice grips and you go like clamp them onto your battery because some of the batteries have small terminals and the vice grips will grab onto the small terminals with pressure. And, uh, so I've seen people take vice grips. They just go to Harbor Freight. They buy two pairs of cheap vice grips, big ones. And they attach them to their battery cables to their inverter, and they can go clamp on to almost any battery. And, it, I mean, it really, really, you know, vice grips, it really sticks. So, Dominic, thank you for the excellent question. Uh, I, I know it sounded simple, but, you know, there's lots of complexities behind what went into the, the design of that vehicle. And if any of you other people, you think, oh, it's too simple for, you know, send it in. Let me see it. I'll look at it. I guarantee you I read everything you send to me and Jack. So, and, there, you know, some of the off-the-wall stuff that you don't think is anything makes for some of the best content that the most people will benefit from, and that's what I'm always after. Thanks, guys. Again, all my stuff I've done with Jack is at Stephen1234. Dot com. Thank you. Bye. Okay, great stuff as always from Stephen Harris. Next, I have a question for Chef Keith Snow on cooking an heirloom pig, and specifically a leg of pork. Keith, take it away. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to speak to David about his bone-in leg of pork. Uh, now, David is running a little workshop at a place called Cider Hollow, And uh, this is a farm that he has. If you just go to ciderhollow.com slash events, you can learn about this pork processing workshop. It's going to be held on December 9th. And he's got a bone-in leg of pork. It's not cured. When you cure it, then you know, then you can call it a ham. At this point, it's just a bone-in leg of pork, which is a delicious thing. And these are heritage hogs, so he's going to prepare this for lunch. So um, he's wondering about a good way to cook it. Now, what I would do is make a simple brine. Now, when you're talking about a brine, if you go to the supermarket and you buy any cuts of pork that are in those cryovac packages, uh, oftentimes that's a brine that they're in. It's a salty solution. Um, sometimes it has some sugar in it, depending upon what kind of flavor. I don't recommend those at all. Um, but the, the idea here is that the brine is a salty solution that's flavored in any number of ways. There's hundreds of different ways you can flavor a brine. It can have a lot of sugar in it. It can have, you know, any kind of flavoring agents from spices to vegetables to liquor, you name it. But the idea is when you have a salty solution on the outside of a piece of meat through osmosis, it's going to want to um, get into the meat. And that is something that you can use to your advantage to make sure that a large cut like that is going to take, you know, a bit of time cooking in the oven. This is going to cook with dry heat or, you know, semi-dry heat. It keeps it moist. And that's why when you buy those things in the store, um, you know, those commercial pork, you know, products in there, that's factory farm pork, very low-fat diet that they're on. 
and uh, tends to produce pretty dry meat. So they, they brine the heck out of those things to keep them somewhat moist. Yuck. Uh, anyway, this is going to be a much better situation for David here. So what you need to do now is think about a vessel that's large enough to hold your bone-in leg of pork, something like a little cooler, and make sure you take some hot soapy water and sanitize this cooler completely before you prepare any food in it. So this is what I would use for the brine. This is just a simple little brine. I would get a, a bottle of uh, wine, like a dry white wine. doesn't need to be more than 8 or $9. I'd get some white vinegar, maybe three-quarters of a cup of white vinegar, about eight cloves of garlic, maybe a giant uh, red onion sliced, um, small maybe teaspoon or so of uh, peppercorns, eight or nine bay leaves, and I would go with about a quarter cup, maybe a little more, of kosher salt. Now, what you want to do is throw all those ingredients into the bottom of your cooler and um, put in just a little bit of water and mix it all together. The idea is to make sure that the um, salt is well dissolved in there. So mix all those ingredients up uh, in enough water to dissolve the salt. And then take your pork, and before you put it in there, you're going to want to pierce it a bunch of times. Just take the tip of a little boning knife or something sharp and just put a mess of little, um, like, you know, just poke it in there. So it's like a little slot, essentially. It doesn't need to be very deep, but just a lot of these holes all over. Just, you know, poke it everywhere, and that's going to help even more get some flavor into it. So then you're going to take it and you're going to put it down in there and then you need to cover it with enough water so it's most of the way covered. And if it doesn't want to, if it floats on you, you can weigh it down with, you know, a clean brick or something that's wrapped in tin foil and put in a bag. You know what I mean? Or even a, a rock that you get outside and wash it. It doesn't really matter as long as it's clean and you want this thing to be submerged. Now, keep in mind that this is probably not going to fit in your refrigerator. So in order to keep it cold, I would start out by putting in, um, you know, fill it up with water and I would put some ice in there that way. You're, this time of year, your water, you know, you're probably, if you're at a farm, most likely you're out having well water, which is going to be pretty darn cold anyway. I'd put some ice in there. You want to have this thing at about 40 degrees or a little bit less. Um, so adding some ice and cold water with your brine that's all mixed up nice and you have your leg of pork submerged, it will do just fine. I would cover it in that cooler and you know put it in the garage on a cold cement floor out on your deck. Just make sure the lid is on there and no you know raccoons are going to come and get your leg of pork, which would not be good. So that's the idea there. And you want this thing to go at least 16 hours, I would say. If you could make it so it's brine 24 hours, that would be even better. And this is going to put a lot of flavor and moisture into your pork. Now, um, before you cook this thing, um, I would take it out of the brine, dry it off a bit, and let it sit on the counter for at least two hours. You don't want a, you know, 38 or 39 degree piece of meat going into a hot oven because that is just a recipe for disaster. So let that thing sit out. I would have no problem taking it out at 8 in the morning and letting it sit on the counter. You know, you could cover it up if you're worried, but let it sit out for, you know, hours to let that thing warm up a bit. Then I would turn your oven on about 375, a good roasting temperature, and get maybe a large turkey roasting um container, put a rack in the bottom so you don't want this thing on the bottom. And then I put three or four cups of the brining liquid in the bottom, put your uh, leg of pork in there, put the lid on, or if you don't have your lid, some heavy-duty foil, cover it up tight. And what you're trying to do is keep some moisture in that um, cooking environment because it is a dry heat, 
but this is going to help it stay even moister. Now you want to cook this thing until your um, calibrated probe thermometer is reading about 150 degrees. Once you get to 150, pull it out. The carryover will take it past 155, which is a safe temperature for cooking pork. And uh, if you're not familiar about calibrating your thermometer, a lot of people have those little stick thermometers and they don't know. And those things go out of calibration quite easily. But on the little handle of that thermometer is a wrench. If you go to harvestheating.com, just go in the search box. It's somewhere on the right side and put in calibrate. You'll see a little thermometer calibrating video. It's handy this time of year to make sure your thermometers are on target. But 155, David, and you'll have a delicious, juicy um, roast leg of pork. I hope that turns out for you. And I wanted to quickly uh, plug my course, folks, over at foodstoragefeast.com. This is a course that teaches you how to cook with pantry items, stored food, long-term storable food, that kind of thing. There's dozens and dozens of videos in there. And a lot of you in the TSP audience are already um, students. Now, I'm offering a coupon for you, save you $20 for your Black Friday or whatever, whatever the heck you want to call it. It's TSP20, so TSP20. If you go to the course and click the enroll button when you get into the checkout process there'll be a place to put in that code tsp20 that'll save you twenty dollars and you'll have the course for seventy nine dollars this is a limited time special because it's usually more than that and i appreciate everybody's support and uh, i hope everybody has a great thanksgiving this is uh you know the for me the most fun time of the year the, the holidays probably the same thing for most of you just remember how important your family is out there. A lot of crazy things going on in the world, as you can see every day in the news. Those people that live with you and your extended family are super important. And don't forget that. The turkey and all that is great, but it's the family that uh, that really matters. So I hope everybody has a safe and delicious uh, family experience over the holidays. I want to thank everybody for supporting Jack at the Survival Podcast and also me. So happy holidays, folks. Happy Thanksgiving. And uh, David, kill it, man. Have a good workshop. Take care. Good stuff from Keith, and it just makes me wonder why anybody's a vegetarian. I just, uh, I know it'll piss some of you off, but if you, if your lifestyle choice can't handle being having a joke made about you for time to time, then I think you have a problem. People make jokes about a lot of my choices all the time. It's just the reality. Uh, anyway, I, I want to go into my segment today. Uh, I don't want to go long with it because this has become a long show for obvious reasons because of how much content's in it. But I have gotten probably 200 emails about this because people are like, Jack, you're going to blow your gasket. I'm really not. Uh, I mentioned I might at the beginning remind up my blood pressure. It won't because I've got to the point when, when, when something is absolutely expected and then it happens, there's no reason for me to get upset about it. I, I just use it as a teachable moment. So what happens if you've been living under a rock, you may not have heard this. Uh, now, according to them, whoever they are, uh, about 50% of Americans, all Americans, account, counting children in this, are now clinically diagnosable with high blood pressure. Why? Because there is like 76 million Americans whose blood pressure reading will generally be somewhere in the 130s for the top end. And what they've done is it used to be that if you were 130, 120s over 80s, you were normal. 
And if you went to 130 over 90, then you became pre-hypertension or pre-high blood pressure. And then if you went to 140 or higher uh, over, over anything over, I think, 90 or 100, you were officially a high blood pressure person in need of medication. And what they have said is, well, under these new guidelines, we're still suggesting a lifestyle changes first, not going straight to drugs. But you know what's going to happen. So let's talk about a few things. Number one, why is this happening? This is happening because of how corporate greed and corporate fiduciary responsibility works in America. There are a lot of things that I love about the free market. There's a lot of things that I love about capitalism. But when capitalism works along with the government, state regulation, and you actually have crony capitalism, i.e. neo-fascism, which is what we have in our economy today, shit gets out of hand. Because you can create guidelines that are enforced by government regulations, government incentives, and then can be enforced through things like another unholy alliance, which is the insurance companies along with government, and the AMA along with government. By the way, the American Medical Association is not a benevolent organization that seeks to make sure that you're healthy. It is the one of the largest labor unions in, in the world. Did you know that? You can look it up if you don't believe me. So... The, the logical progression of an industry is no matter how big it gets, it wants to get bigger. Any individual company, any individual pharmaceutical manufacturer, they want to grow. And anything other than growth in our current system and how we judge success is a death sentence. If Pfizer or Merck or Johnson & Johnson begins to have lower sales, even if they're still making billions in, in profit, uh, their stock price will begin to tumble, investor dollars will go elsewhere, and they will crumble into a hole of what they used to be. Look at any major corporation that that happened to, even that is still making a profit. How much investor money, for instance, is flowing into Yahoo today? Even though they make billions of dollars. Look at the price of the stock. It's not coming back. It's not going to ever be $300 again. It's done. It's toast. And yet it's managed to cling to life and hold on. Many such companies don't. And it doesn't matter if it's technology, automotive. It doesn't matter what it is. If you fail to produce growth for long enough, you crumble. So the pharmaceutical companies need growth. The medical device companies need growth. All of them need growth or they die. So what they've done for the last 30 years is continuously make new medications and invent new illnesses. And if you don't believe that, just look at all of the diagnoses that can be accomplished today that 30 years ago didn't exist. Like the, the word for the disease, the disorder, etc., especially in the psychological world, didn't exist. They just create diseases. They create a drug, figure out what it'll do, then they make a disease for it. Non-24, chronic dry eye. I mean, Jesus Christ, right? If you got chronic dry eye, come here, I'll punch you in the face, you'll cry, it'll cure it. I mean, jeez. And I know that is a thing, And there's, but my God, when we're taking a drug for it that has sudden death as a side effect, I think we've gone overboard. But they don't think we've gone overboard. So what they've done is they've plateaued. You can only keep creating so many new drugs for so long and so many new illnesses that aren't illnesses. And calling shit a different name and making a new drug for it for so long. And then having your patent expire, so changing two or three things to make the drug better, giving it a new name, and making it sound like something you can trust and believe in. Like Entresto. You, you really don't think they call it Entresto because it sounds like trust? Huh? 
And there's in and Keytruda. It's the truth. Why do you think they have these names? So you can only do that shit for so long before you begin to plateau. And it really starts to get hard to grow. So what do you do? When I was in the computer testing industry, in the computer hardware industry, and we needed a market segment growth, we would just go rewrite specifications. You now need this. And then our existing customer base would have to adapt to the new technology because we rewrote the specification. And there were these independent standards committees that decided what Category 5 was and Category 5E was and Category 6 and Category 6E was, okay? They would make these decisions and they would say, when does the industry need to adopt these standards? What new technologies will require them? And it didn't matter if the technology would run on plain old Cat 5. If the standards committee said that everybody needed to go to Cat 6, then not only did we have to update the infrastructure, you had to update the testing So one of the people on that standards committee would work for our company, have a PhD, sound really important, and they would come out with this standard. And then we would, as salespeople, go out and do the bidding as minions and say, hey, if you're going to do video conferencing, you need to upgrade it to this. And we would work with the consultants and get the new job spec in that way. And then the installed base that had all this old test equipment would have to all buy new test equipment. See? Pattern recognition. That's what this is. I guarantee you, Pfizer and Merck and all the people that make blood pressure medication are behind this shit. All they got to do is lower the threshold and more prescriptions will be written and they make more money. That's all this is. And I think blood pressure is one of the biggest places where scams are committed in the medical industry and they know they're doing it. And I have some articles to support some of the things I'm going to tell you right now. And you can read them if you want to, and you can be angry with me if you want to, but it doesn't change reality. I'm going to say there are people with chronic, serious hypertension, and I do believe these medications extend and prolong lives. I also believe these medications cost lives when they are improperly prescribed because doctors are stupid. And the reason I say doctors are stupid is I believe that if you make a diagnosis of high blood pressure with one or two blood pressure readings, in a medical office, especially if it's a threshold diagnosis where, you know, if they were five points later, we wouldn't lower, we wouldn't do this. You're stupid because you should know what I know because I'm not a doctor. I don't even play a doctor on TV like Dr. Oz does because that's what Dr. Oz does. He pretends to be a doctor on TV. Here's what I mean. Do you know that a lot of people hate doctors? I don't mean like they want to go like throw dog shit, fiery bags of dog shit at doctors' doors because they hate them as people. I mean they don't like to go to doctors' offices. If you're a person that hates to go to the doctor's office, doesn't really like, feels uncomfortable there, would rather be somebody else, somewhere else, look around, somebody thinks you're crazy, but raise your little right hand right now for me. Right now, out of 150,000 people listening to this show over the next day or two, uh, I would bet you about 100,000 were honest enough to raise their hand. Now, If you put your hand down, people are looking at you. If you believe that being in an uncomfortable situation can cause your blood pressure to go up, put your hand back up. Probably more people than even admitted that they're uncomfortable at the doctor's office just raised a little hand and looked around, make sure nobody thought you were crazy. Put your hand down before they see you. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to give you a couple real life situations that have impacted me personally. 
many years ago, I had a tooth that went bad. It had a filling in it. The filling came out. Uh, it was a small filling. I didn't even know it came out. It came out my food or something like that. And crap got in the hole. And next thing I know, I had an abscessed tooth. And this was a very painful tooth. And I went to the doctor and he looked at it and said, man, and he figured out exactly what had happened. He said, yeah, it got inside and we, we just need to extract that tooth. It's not worth trying to save it. It's not worth doing a root canal. I'm going to pull your tooth. But then, before he did that, being a responsible doctor, which Dennis are, he took my blood pressure. It was like 160 on the top end. And he gives me this big, long you know, speech about Jack. As we, and I was like in my 20s. As we get older, some, and we, you really should see your primary care physician. I'm like, I don't think you understand how apprehensive I am right now. And I gave him the whole speech of, I'm larger than you, and if you really hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. I don't like Dennis digging around in my teeth. So he kept giving me his bullshit. I'm like, look, am I going to die when you do this? He's like, no. I said, look, can we get this done? Because I needed it done. So he did it. He got my tooth pulled on completely numb. He decided to take my blood pressure again. It was like 127 over 74 or something like that. He's like, well, your blood pressure really went down. That's probably from the anesthesia. It's like, because I'm not scared of shit anymore, dumbass. Okay? That's one example of that. So is it possible that people have their blood pressure at least slightly elevated, maybe 10 points, and cross that threshold just because they don't want to be in a doctor's office? The answer is yes. Another example is my wife. Uh, while we were in Arkansas, my wife started to have chest pains. She started taking her blood pressure. Every time she took her blood pressure, it went higher. She became more and more apprehensive. We went to a clinic so that we could get in right away. She went in, they took her blood pressure, it was sky high. The doctor simply told her, listen, you're not having a heart attack. You're not. She asked her about her activity over the last couple of days. We had gone on hikes during this and all. She said, you'd be flat on your back right now if that's what was going on. I can give you an EKG, but I don't think you need one. You're having acid reflux. That's causing chest pain because you're a medical professional. You know chest pain could be this. So it's making it worse. You're becoming more agitated. You're having greater um, acid reflux. So it's hurting more. You probably need to cut back on your coffee. I'm going to prescribe for you an antacid, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Let's take your blood pressure. Her blood pressure dropped 25 freaking points because the doctor told her she wasn't having a heart attack and she relaxed. Now, the articles I'm going to give you talk about some of these things. They also talk about things like, do you know if you talk to the person, that if you talk to the person that's doing the blood pressure test, it can make your blood pressure higher. If the cuff's not perfectly positioned, if your arm's not at the exact same height as your heart, all these things can make your blood pressure appear higher than it is. Simply being really tall or even if you're not fat, just being a really large person can make what's normal for you be just a couple points higher. We don't adjust for it. It's only two or four points. What if it's two or four points that puts me into the point where you want to put me on drugs? If it was four points lower, you wouldn't. Four points higher, you see what I'm saying? Coupled with the apprehension of being in a medical facility, which scares people. So I'm going to give you my last real-world story here. My wife comes home. She's very upset. She went to the eye doctor. Eye doctor looked at her eyes and said, at some point, your blood pressure has been exceedingly high. 
you have damaged blood vessels in your eyes. I can see them. You are a dun 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 ticking time bomb. That was the exact words he used. I almost went down to his office, drug him out, and curbed him. You can look up what that is if you don't know. Because as her uh, eye doctor, if he's going to make statements like that, he should be a, a you know know her medical history. As many of you know, my wife suffered with a condition called trigeminal neuralgia. It's been called the suicide disease because it's so painful. For nine years, she was on various medications and had you know anything from two seconds of extensive pain to 15 to 20 minute uh, episodes of pain I cannot even imagine. Where I'd sit on the floor with her and hold her back and tell her it was going to end. At the end of this, when she finally had a surgery called microvascular decompression, it's amazing how you become an expert on a disease when it actually affects you, and you tend to know more than doctors do about it. I promise you, I know far more about trigeminal neuralgia than, than most neurologists, let alone MDs. And if you don't believe me, find me one and we'll debate about it. Unless they are a person that actually treats it with things like microvascular decompression, not just heard about it and thinks they know what it is, but the actual surgeons like Dr. White, he knows more than me. The average, average run-of-the-mill neurologist knows, knows less, and that's another part of this problem. Uh, as Dr. Ken Berry would say, lies your doctor tells you. So toward the end of that, she entered an irretractable period of pain. I rushed her to an ER. Uh, they gave her a, a huge amount of a, a medication called Dilantin, which is actually for seizures, not Dilaudin, which is what they thought we were fishing for. That got her through the night. By the next day, she was in irretractable pain again. I had to get her into a hospital called Zelipsky, where Dr. White, in my opinion, saved my wife's life, because I believe she would have put a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger had this not been corrected. She went through a period of pain of about 12 hours that I cannot imagine, where she was on so much morphine, they said if we give her more, she has to go to ICU. And yet she still whimpered in pain. I'm thinking during those episodes and during that period, her blood pressure might have spiked a little bit. I'm just saying, this clown did not know that. She goes to her primary care physician. Now she's upset about this, so her blood pressure is in the mid-140s. Her blood pressure has always been in like the one-teens, right? Like 115, 118. Her doctor gives her this huge speech about how if you were my mother, I would put you on medication. And I said to my wife, so you went to the doctor's office. They took your blood pressure. How many times did she say? She said, they took it twice. It was actually a little higher the second time. I went, you know, you just know I kind of remember something like that happening. So I said, why don't you do this? Before you make a decision to go on a medication, you're going to be on for the rest of your life. Because of a possible misdiagnosis. And I reminded her of the intense pain she went through and why that might have been like when she had damage to some of her blood vessels in her eyes. And she went, oh, yeah. yeah. No shit. And why don't you go get the best blood pressure cuff you can get from Amazon. Go order it right now. It'll be here tomorrow. Take your blood pressure five times a day for the next month. Chart it every time you take it. Take it into your doctor a month from now and then discuss this. And you know what this doctor who had gotten on her soapbox and said, if you were my own mother, I would place you on this small amount of medication that, that you're going to be on for the rest of your life. I'll just ignore that. The, the drug reps come in and push all the time, by the way. There's no need for you to be on this at all. You think? 
You think, you think the average freaking MD would have as much sense as a redneck hippie duck farmer. But you know what, folks? They don't because they're blinded by the pharmaceutical industry that gives them the synopsis of the studies that they pay for. And now they have simply changed the standard and they want to put another 30 to 50 million people on this medication for the rest of their life in the next few years. And they just figured out how to do it. I am not saying to stay away from pharmaceutical medications. I am not saying that you should refrain from using them. I am not saying that these medications do not save lives because at times they do. I am saying you should just not trust because you were told that you should and you should use common freaking sense and double check this shit and you owe it to yourself to research this because I believe their goal is to put 80% or more of people on high blood pressure medication. This shit is going to impact you or somebody you love. And just what you'll save on your health insurance, just what you'll save on your health insurance is worth buying a good blood pressure cuff and tracking your own blood pressure four or five, six times a day for a, for a month before you decide to make a decision based on one or two readings in a place where you are naturally apprehensive and probably have elevated your blood pressure by 10 to 15 points just by being there. Now, some people don't. Some people, they, if, if they did this, you know, their blood pressure is 115 or 155. I don't care what the hell it is. It's going to be that. But in the end, these people have just picked a number at which they can prescribe a medication that will impact your life until the day that you die. And I'm going to tell you, the problem with blood pressure medication is it has to be done the way it's supposed to be done, and coming off of it is difficult. And I believe that my good friend Hal Dodd never should have went on high blood pressure medication. He made a decision to come off it on his own without doctor's assistance, and I believe that's why he died at 41 in relatively good health. And he would have been better off never, ever, ever taking a single pill. I don't want that to happen to you. Again, I'm not saying not to use blood pressure medication. I'm not saying it doesn't save lives. I'm saying it's extremely over-prescribed. And the methodology by which we diagnose it is so flawed that any doctor engaged in it should be smacked in the face with a large frozen fish, preferably something like a salmon or a steelhead trout. And if that's you and you're a doctor and you're doing that, I am including you. And I am telling you that you are abdicating your responsibilities And you don't know what the F you're doing, and I don't care if it pisses you off. But if you are going to make a diagnosis of high blood pressure based on several readings in a medical office, you are being freaking retarded. You are being freaking retarded. You are ignoring a basic physiological response in your patients. They don't like you. They're afraid of you. They don't want to be there. I don't care that you go to a medical office every day and it doesn't bother you. You're a freaking doctor or a nurse or a nurse practitioner, etc. It's not the same for your patients. Quit being retarded and start giving your patients advice to self-monitor over a long enough period to make a correct diagnosis. And don't change everything about the way you've been diagnosing high blood pressure for the last 20 or 30 years in your practice because somebody somewhere decided to change a number so that it would benefit them. And I actually got through that without completely snapping my shit. And everything that I just told you is true and verifiable and factual. And if you doubt me before you type me one of these emails, angry keyboard emails, go research it and provide me proof that I'm wrong before you waste my freaking time and yours. Because without that, I'm just going to delete your email and I'm not going to read it. 
maybe I should pause and take those 10 breaths I talked about. I got plenty of energy, but I'm a little bit irritated now. I'm really not. I'm actually kind of happy that I got a chance to, uh, to bring that to your attention. If you're going to go get that blood pressure cuff I talked about and monitor your own blood pressure, check out Amazon.com to do that. But before you do, you know what to do. Go to tspaz.com and check out all the reviews we do on Amazon. And remember, whenever you do your online shopping, If you'll go to tspaz.com first, T-S-P-A-Z.com first, uh, you will help the survival podcast and the work that we do. Check out all of our reviews. We have an extensive uh, number of reviews at this point, hundreds of them even. We put out one a day. Uh, I, I do bring back some from time to time that I've done in the past, and I am doing that today. Uh, the book that I have for you today on uh, my Amazon item of the day review is Perennial Vegetables by Eric Tosenmeyer. Eric Tosenmeyer, of course, worked with Dave Jackie in making the uh, the, the two-copy uh, set on, on forest gardening, probably the most incredible academic work on plant biology in North America that's ever been done. It's pretty amazing. Perennial vegetables is much easier to read, though, and it's about what it sounds like. Vegetables you can grow in your garden and produce food for you that come back year after year without being replanted. If you do it right, they actually become weeds, and they propagate themselves. You could sell them to other people. Uh, this is a great book. The reason I decided to bring it back today is we are a week away from Thanksgiving, right? Anybody watch the Steelers kick the shit out of the freaking Titans last night? By the way, just saying, it was great. Uh, you know, this is when I actually started to watch football a lot because we're heading into like time where the playoff picture is coming out. And so maybe thinking when I brought Thanksgiving, but you know, it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, the holidays, etc., where we kind of kick back. We have catalog time with our seed catalogs and stuff. It gets snowy and we start planning for spring. Kind of gets us through that winter. Um, this is a great time for doing that. This is a great book to read to stir ideas. Again, it's called Perennial Vegetables by Eric Tosenmeyer. Uh, you can find it at survivalpodcast.com. Just scroll down and you can find it. Or go to tspaz.com and click our most current review link, and you'll see all of our reviews. It should be right at the top if you're listening to this show anytime within a couple days after it's been published. But again, always you can help us by doing your online shopping where dun 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 dun, dun, dun tspaz.com, the painless way to support the show that you love. All right, with that, let's talk about our song of the day. I dig this song. I never heard it before. Uh, it is by one of my favorite musicians of all time, but it's a very new song. It's called If I Could Be Anywhere by Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown really is one of my favorite musical, musical artists. And as much as I've loved his work over the years, it was several years ago I went to a Jimmy Buffett concert, and Jackson Brown opened for him. And he, you know, he's getting a little bit long in age, like all of us are. I mean, this is a guy that was making music in the early 70s. And he came up there in the middle of a giant stadium, you know, without the best acoustics. And he played with a band, and he also did what he's going to do right here. Picked up a guitar and played all by himself. And I was like, this man has not lost a step. And in this song, this is a live version of the song done at where they do TED Talks. And, and Jackson Brown has always been a very socially conscious artist, very concerned about the environment and very anti-war and, 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 and very much, you know, a, a pro-population, a pro-populist person. Uh, songs like Standing in the Breach and things like that. Um, just, just an amazing guy overall, I think. A guy that has, you know, some of his politics lean a little left, but he's never been in anybody's face about it. He makes his statements and lets you figure out what you want to do with it. And I, I, I respect people like that. And this song is really about saving the oceans. He talks about the plastic. Every piece of plastic we ever made, is, it's, it's still around. None of it's gone. None of it's gone back to nature and, and how we, we've hurt the planet. But the context of the song is, if I could be anywhere, I'd be here. 
because this is the time for us to, to step up and act and do something, I can be part of that. Let me give you some of the lyrics of this song. Sliding on the shimmering surface between two worlds, standing at the center of time as it uncurls, cutting through the veil of illusion, moving beyond past conclusions, rendering all doubt and confusion clear, if I could be anywhere, if I could be anywhere right now, I would be here. Searching for the future among the things we're throwing away, swimming through the ocean of junk we produce every day, you have to admit it's clever, maybe the pinnacle of human endeavor, when things are made to throw away, but never made to disappear. If I could be anywhere, if I could be anywhere in time, I would be here. The Romans, the Spanish, the British, the Dutch, American exceptionalism so out of touch, successions of empire repeating its course, extracting the wealth and ruling by force, on and on through time. But the world can't take it very much longer, and we won't make it lest we're smarter and stronger. The world's going to shake itself free of our greed somehow. If I could be anywhere, if I could be anywhere and change things, it would have to be now. They say nothing lasts forever, but all the plastic ever made is still here. And no amount of closing our eyes will make it disappear. And the world can't take it very much longer. And we won't make it lest we're smarter and stronger. The world's going to shake itself free of our greed somehow. And the world can't take it. That you can see, if the oceans don't make it, neither do we. The world's going to shake itself all the way free somehow. If I could be anywhere, if I could be anywhere in time, If I could be anywhere and change the outcome, it would have to be now. Now, that's his issue. But I think, again, great art always applies to more people than the person that created it in ways that maybe the creator could never even see that it would. And I've always said, if I could be anywhere, it would be now. I used to wax nostalgic when I was a kid and think I was born a few decades or a few centuries too late and think, you know, what if I was a, a trapper during the expansion period of the United States and could have lived in that incredible wilderness? You know, what would that have been like? And I think, yeah, I might have enjoyed it. But we all have things that are important to us that we are best suited to do something about whether it's environmentalism, whether it's about freedom and liberty, whether it's just about our own family and the people around us. You know, I've been asked too, and it kind of speaks to the same world. If you could go back in time, sit down with yourself when you were 15 years old or 20 years old and have a conversation with yourself, what would you tell yourself? I'm like, absolutely nothing. People are like, really? Yeah. I might have changed my course And I might not be where I am today. And I believe that where I am today is where I'm supposed to be. I, I wouldn't want to mess that up. I might not have my wife. I might not have my grandkids. Are you kidding me? I don't want to risk that. And I think unless you've killed somebody or something like that or made some major mistake that cost you 30 years of your life in prison, you, if you really think about it, you'd probably answer it the same way. And I think even some people, maybe you know, I think if you killed somebody, you really would want to go back and not do it. But anything else, even people that have spent five years in prison, I've talked to people like, I needed that. Like, really? Yeah, I needed that. That was my path. I had to walk it. That's what this song is for me. Instead of wishing I could be somewhere a hundred years in the future, a hundred years in the past, I embrace where I am now. Because I am uniquely suited 
for the path that I have chosen to this point. I believe you are too. Think about that as you go through your weekend. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or you get to Shimmering surface between two worlds Standing at the center of time As it uncurls Cutting through the veil of illusion Moving beyond past conclusions Rendering all my doubt and confusion clear If I could be anywhere If I could be anywhere If I could be anywhere right now I would want to be here Searching for the future Among the things we're throwing away Trying to see the world through the junk we produce every day They say nothing lasts forever But all the plastic ever made is still here No amount of closing our eyes will make it disappear If I could be anywhere If I could be anywhere If I could be anywhere in history, I would want to be here. The Romans, the Spanish, the British, the Dutch, American exceptionalism, so out of touch. The folly of empire, repeating its course, imposing its will, ruling by force, on and on through time. Longer. We're not gonna make it unless we're smarter and stronger. The world's gonna shake itself free of our greed somehow. If I could be anywhere, if I could be anywhere in time, if I could be anywhere and change things. It will have to be now They say nothing lasts forever But all the plastic ever made is still here No amount of closing our eyes will make it disappear And the world can't take it very much longer Yes, we're smarter and stronger The world's gonna shake itself Free of our greed somehow And the world can't take it That you can see If the oceans don't make it Neither will we The world's gonna shake itself All the way free somehow If I could be anywhere If I could be anywhere in time 
If I could be anywhere and change the outcome, it would have to be now. Thank you. <laughs> uh,